Hi, Giselle Santa Rivera here with Rob Lee on the Truth is in This Art podcast. And welcome to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I have the privilege of being in conversation with a program manager for communications and narrative change at Open Society Institute, Baltimore, OSI. Please welcome Evan Serpic. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for popping on, making the time, wanting to, to chew the fat, spin a yarn with Rob Lee. I'm going to see if I can get all of them in. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to start off um, just in a very like general sense of what have you. Could you like, I because like narrative change, never heard of that, that term before, that, that, that phrasing before. So can you describe your, your current work and what about OSI resonated with you? Sure. Uh, yeah, narrative change is sort of this uh, phrase that everyone started using a few years ago. Uh, you know, it became sort of a real trendy word to talk about, um, you know, the, the stories that people tell and the stories people tell about Baltimore, the stories people tell about, um, you know, people of different backgrounds and that kind of thing. So um, that's a relatively new part of my work. I, I started uh, at Open Society in 2015. Um, I've been a journalist my whole career and then sort of was looking to... Uh, to venture in a different direction. And um, I really love the work that Open Society has done. They've always been really, um, you know, a leader in talking about uh, criminal justice policy and uh, youth policy, education, addiction. Uh, they have a fellowships program. So just programs that I knew and really loved. And, I, you know, they uh, had an open position for, to be the director of communications. So that would be, you know, um, helping get the word out about the work that, you know, our fellows and our grantees and folks were doing. And, and I was really happy about that work. I think part of the reason I was brought in was to try to um, expand the, the, the base of people who knew about this work. I think it was pretty well known in like philanthropy circles or uh, donor circles, but not like folks on the ground so much or people in communities or or even really among activists and advocates. It was kind of like this organization that was on high and, and not really well known. So, so that was the work for most of my time since 2015. And then sort of three or four years ago, um, we started to talk about, I mean, you know, Baltimore has... Um, has a reputation. I don't know if you know this, Rob. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, my stars and garters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really came out in since 2016. Just the way you know, uh, the right wing started to you know talk about cities and then particularly black led black majority cities and and um, but really cities in general as these like dangerous places where nothing good happens and you know President Trump would have these awful tweets about Baltimore you know and uh, and the right wing media really created this fear and and actually I can't put it all on them because it goes back to the wire and the corner and all these things that sort of created this uh this idea about baltimore that's certainly part of the story i mean there's a lot of truth in the wire you know but there's there's so much more and so we started to think about how do we start to and actually and, and that that narrative if you will really hurts the city in a lot of ways i mean yes. it hurts it in terms of the funding we get from the government it hurts it in terms of the funding we get from the state it hurts, it, you know, it hurts us in terms of tourism. It hurts us in, in terms of all kinds of contracts and and just the work that people on the ground are doing. You know, advocates who work with a lot of folks, you know, who work in the criminal justice system and on schools and in you know civic spaces. And basically, all that that work is is really hurt by that narrative. So we started thinking about how can we invest in things to try to try to shift that narrative so people see a different side of Baltimore. And so that's when that other part of my title was added, the, the um, culture and narrative change. And so we started to invest in um, things like um, 
the Black Arts District, uh, you know, and things like, um, uh, you know, certain documentaries about the city, you know, investing in the Baltimore Beat, the new, uh, you know, the the alternative weekly that's coming back. Um, so things that, that are attempting to, to like lift up community voices and tell a different story. So so I have to say, so I've been there now seven years. I'm, I've been pretty happy with um, with this work. It's a different kind of work than the journalism, but um, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, and, and and thank you for for walking us through that because um, you know what comes I guess in doing podcasting for as long as I have thirteen years and you know I, I remember I was a part of a network and uh, I wanted to keep my content but I was like I can you know I can, I can play well with others and we we had this one person who was in New York and this was. You know, when Freddie Gray happened and the fallout that was attached to that. And they were talking very ill about Baltimore. And I got defensive and protective. I was like, don't you talk, stop talking about things you don't know about. And and even with this podcast, going back to 2019, you know, I remember I think it was the second or the third episode when I had Easy Jackson on. And that was the day when Trump and Elijah Cummings were going back and forth. That's really what was the driving force of why I need to keep doing this and going to. I, and I think included in what in, in what you say, you said so well, like tourism, legislation, funding, opportunities, ultimately, like, you know, there are other places like why don't we have more things being filmed here? You know, we have interesting architecture. And I remember talking to a friend and I've said this on this podcast before and um, I was telling her about doing the series. And she was like, I'd be surprised if, if you could find 20 people, 20 interesting people in Baltimore. So it's this notion that, you know, and it kind of continues. It's like, you know, it's blighted. We don't have anything. It's a disenfranchisement. And that's not really coming from here. I think what we have here is things are decentralized. And I think one of the hidden benefits of this podcast, not to toot my own horn, is it kind of enables people to see who's here. Like, oh, you're doing that here? That's that's really great. But a lot of times we fall for what mass media who has no ties to this city might just be spouting off. And it and I and I think I'll say it, but I think you were touching on it. Um, it's almost insert black city. They're bad for whatever reason. And, you know, it was Chicago not long ago, 700 murders or what have you. And now it's like, let's talk about the cubbies. Let, let, let's, <laughs> let's talk about the socks. You know, let's get a let's get a grinder. Um. You, you touched on, you know, like your journalism background. So let's let's dive into that a bit. Um, so obviously, you know, uh, Baltimore, uh, the city paper. Um, and also your, your background has a stint writing for the Rolling Stone. So can you walk us through your career path and ultimately, you know, how some of that experience in journalism really serves you even to this day? Sure. Um, how do you do that? So it's been a been a circuitous path, but I um, I started writing for magazines back in, uh, you know, I got out of college and wanted to write for newspapers, magazines, for anybody that would have me and uh, spent a few years just pitching myself endlessly to every magazine, every newspaper, you know, like freelancing, just sort of hustling, trying to get little jobs where I could. And then in 2000, I got hired by Entertainment Weekly as like an editorial assistant. Um, and so, and that was both like a guy's assistant, like the music department's direct, uh, you know, editor's assistant, and also getting to write. Like that's when I started writing some reviews, writing some, you know, doing some interviews. So then I, uh, 
I was promoted to a correspondent there, which I, I could stop answering a guy's phone calls, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I worked there for like three years writing, got some really great opportunities to interview some some really cool artists, interviewed Kanye West back when he was a producer back in the day. And had, him, had him rap to me over the phone and try to convince me he was a rapper. And I'm like, this guy is nuts. <laughs> Um, but had some great experiences. Um, and then I actually went away to the Peace Corps for two years. I lived in Kenya for two years and then came back um, and took a job at Rolling Stone. It was freelancing again, took this job at Rolling Stone, which was also another great experience, just writing about music. I did write a lot about hip hop because there's a lot of really sort of rock focused folks there. And I loved hip hop. I love rock too, but I really loved hip hop. So I got a lot of opportunities to, to talk to, to folks in that world. Um, and was there for four years and and then just was kind of um, got married, had my first son. And um, my wife, of all people, wanted to come to Baltimore. And I was like, really? Because, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I grew up here and I was like, I just thought I would never come back. I got to New York and I was like, that's it. That's it. Um, but, you know, we were getting priced out of our little Brooklyn apartment and she was visiting my parents and being like, this seems nice. I was like, really? You think so? Um <laughs> So we started looking into it and I tried to think, well, what could I do down there? I mean, you know, because all the media stuff is in New York. Um, and it turned out there was an opening for a senior editor at Baltimore Magazine. So that was my job when I came back in 2008. Um, yeah, and that was a great experience, too. I, you know, developed some really good friends there. Max Weiss, who's now the who's still the managing the, the editor in chief there, was a good friend. Um and so worked there for four years. And then the opportunity to, to be the editor of the city paper came up in uh, 2012. And that was like a transformative experience. I don't know what your history is with the city paper, but I had a big, like when I was growing up, that was, that was the Bible. That was the, uh, the, the, that was like my favorite of those. Cause we had a, I feel like we had a few of those kind of free-ish like available sort of publications, but that was like my favorite. Like I was all, it, it matched my sensibilities. And yep. whenever I go to a different city, I was recently in Austin and I ended up seeing something that reminded me a lot of the city paper. And I was like, Oh, come back. Just, just please oh, yeah. leave me. <laughs> yeah. All the alt weeklies in every city, they were just the coolest. I mean, they were like where you like read about what you're supposed to be listening to, you know, what you should be, what, what, you know, what shows you should be going to. Um, and so the fact, you know, when I was growing up, I was, it was way too cool for me. I wasn't that, you know, <laughs> that, that into what they were selling when I was like in high school. But, you know, when I came back and had that opportunity, it was just fantastic. So I had a great um, experience there, incredibly hard work. It's a tiny staff and it was a great paper. Um, and especially it, while I was there, we got, it got bought by the Baltimore Sun. So I was there from 2012 to 2015. And in 2014 is when the Sun bought it. And that's when things kind of just got worse. I mean, uh, you know, there was a lot of financial pressure, you know, cutting of our budget, cutting of our staff. Um, so that was when around 2015, when I was like um, looking for a change. And unfortunately, two years later, despite incredible people working there, the sun shut it down in 2017. So I'm really glad. I don't know how much you're up on the Baltimore beat, but I love the the, the folks there. Um, Lisa Snowden McRae and Terry Henderson and Brandon Soderberg who were, yeah. were bringing that back. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been observing, you know, and yeah, I was glad to see that back. And I think, you know, having the interviews, I, I did an interview with Imtiaz um, or what have you from uh, the banner a while back and just being able to have conversations on, you know, having like, competition is kind of not the right word, but I, I think it's in that vein, though, having different sources for the news in a, in a print or even on a website sort of sort of way. Absolutely. I mean, and I actually, you know, I've been kind of uh, 
had mixed feelings about the banner, you know, for, for various reasons, but um, the more media, the better. I mean, this is not, uh, this town is not covered nearly enough as it should be. So, you know, um, the fact that there is, there are people, you know, it's, it's sort of corporate backed and it's a lot of the same reporters from the sun, you know, which, so it's probably a similar product, but um one thing they're doing now that I actually say I'm really happy about is they're bringing back like a community calendar. That's the one thing. That's one of the things that has disappeared since the city paper, like a yep. really comprehensive weekly, monthly calendar of all the shows, art shows, yeah. community events, music events. There's nowhere to go now. So I'm really glad they're bringing that back. I hope they do a good job. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, when you're looking for just different things to do, they're literally, you go into, you know, it almost auto fills it in Google things to do. And, and I remember, remember being a guy that would go through like the city papers like all right what's here what should i be doing and yeah. i might have you know at one point there was this this maybe valentine's day sort of thing that i may have put a little love letter and i got a fair amount <laughs> oh, yeah. of attention from it and it was like she put me in the paper i was like yeah baby whatever you need <laughs> <laughs> yeah they used to do that we used to publish valentine's every year yeah. that was, that was very that, cool that is really cool and it's really community and it felt like i think something that really matched Baltimore in that it was accessible. I think that that's my, my thing, not my thing about Baltimore. It's definitely an East coast city. And some people say a Southern, but it's East coast city, in my opinion, mid Atlantic and all of that, but it's much more accessible than a lot of these other, other cities. So I think you could be able to see you pop up as like a, a, um, as a character, as a figure within the paper. It's like, oh yeah, we have, uh, you know, Rob's two cent or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it was, it was a very, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the paper went through changes and it had good and bad years, but overall, I think it did a good job of, of staying in touch with the people of Baltimore and really lifting up folks, you know, in communities and giving everybody access to, you know, um, tell their story. So it was, it was cool. I'm glad you got your, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to I want to stay on that for a little bit. Um, what are some of the memorable stories, like whether it be through you know Rolling Stone, whether it be through um, the city paper? What comes to mind in terms of memorable stories that you were able to contribute or report on that you know really pops sticks out? What what, what made them so special for you? Um, well, I mean, you know, there were certainly lots of opportunities to interview you know, lots of really interesting, famous people, you know, when I was at Rolling Stone Entertainment Weekly. And, um, you know, that was very cool, you know, getting to spend time with like Jay-Z or um, uh, Beck, you know, or just people who were sort of thoughtful and interesting and, and and have conversations. But when I think about what I'm sort of most proud of, I do think of the, the city paperwork just because, you know, as someone from Baltimore, um, you know, really contributing to the sort of, um you know the culture here and 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 really telling the story i mean the work that we did around the uprising you know in 2015 is really one of the some of the most memorable one of the most memorable weeks of my life for sure i mean we were um we had a couple of reporters at the time um who were, who were all doing great work still um you know baynard woods and brandon soderberg um who were sort of out every day you know um sort of seeing what was happening in, in different protest movements and talking to people and leadership. And, and I was out there a lot. Ed Erickson was out there. We had a couple other reporters who were out there. Um, and we wound up like working, you know, 18 hour days to try to get as many perspectives crammed into the paper. I remember the, um, the day that things really went down, you know, so Freddie Gray, I think died on a Saturday and then, um, 
I might have my days around here, but the two big protest movements were, you know, the, there was Sunday, uh, which is I think when the funeral was. And then um, Tuesday is the day that everything broke loose at the Oriole game, I think. Um, and so we, at the paper, we closed on Tuesdays. We like had a whole issue that was basically set to go to the printer on Tuesday. And, um, and we just decided we had to throw it out and start over just because there was so much to report on. And so we all stayed there um, all night, uh, you know, chronicling everything we had seen, you know, transcribing all the people we had talked to. We had Joe Giordano was the photo editor who had these amazing pictures from all over town, really um, told a story. And, and so we, you know, we were there till 7 a.m. putting together this issue. And I'm, I'm, when I think about what I'm most proud of, that's that's at the top of the list. And I remember walking outside at like 7 a.m. and it was like four or five of us. Um, and I was the only one who had a car, I think. So I was going to like drive, <laughs> drive everybody home. And I remember the security guard was like, uh, they say I got to walk you to your car. <laughs> I was like, really? Like, there's no one around for miles. But um, so he walked us to our car and then we drove home. And I always remember this, but like I had little kids at the time. And so I had like a kid's bop CD. <laughs> so you know, it's 7 a.m., you know, the morning after this crazy violence and we're driving through the city listening to kids bop, <laughs> dropping uh, staff off at their houses. Um, really so that, that was a pretty incredible experience. That's great. So let, let's talk about um, impact work and community work. Like we hear about, you know, that often. And I, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm somewhat distrusting when people say, oh, you know, let's talk about the impact here. It just feels weird to me. It feels like it's used. Like when you see impact, you don't need it to be looked at as a line item. Like what's the yeah. ROI on this impact? Like, all right, less. What is your take on take on like community-based change, this sort of community work, this impact-oriented work. You hear all of these different things that are kind of floated around, they're used interchangeably. What is your take on it with respect to in Baltimore? Like, how are we doing um, from from your vantage point? How are we doing? What are the things that you're seeing? Um, you know, it's funny to think about it that way because when I sort of started at OSI, that was the big question. How do we... Um, show that we're having an impact and you know, we're making these investments to try to improve, um, you know, the standard of living here to address poverty, to address like these really entrenched long-term issues. And it's like, you know, you're not going to be able to, to make change in a year. You're not going to be able to make change, you know, overnight. And so, and, and yet, especially when we were really trying to raise money, which thank goodness we're not doing anymore. We're fully funded, but um, you know, they, like, you know, people want to see, you know, what's the, what's the impact from, from last month. And, you know, and so that's a really hard thing to, to try to um, distill, but I have to say, I mean, I, um, uh, I got involved with the ceasefire movement, Baltimore ceasefire movement as an ambassador a few years ago. Yeah. And, um, and their perspective really helped in, in thinking about this because I mean, First of all, when you work for, with them and really with a lot of different grassroots community level organizations, you just see just how much work is going on on the ground in communities. You know, people who are um, sometimes not even really part of an organization, but who are just in communities who are holding, you know, communities down, you know, promoting peace, promoting sort of um you know, helping people out with distributing food, with helping people out, getting access to jobs or services or just sort of these networks in communities. And imagine if um, if people, how much worse things would be if that wasn't happening. Right. I mean, that's sort of one of the things Ceasefire asks. Like whenever you ask yourself, like, why isn't anybody in Baltimore doing this? Which people say all the time. You're like, instead say like, 
well, who is doing this now? Because they are, you know, there's people out here who are doing incredible work every day and, and they're not in the paper. They're not well known, um, but they're having a huge impact every day if you look for them. So I think that's that kind of relates back to the narrative thing. I mean, if you actually tell the story about community leaders and I've, I've been privileged enough to meet incredible community leaders you know um i think about people like ray kelly you know who's at you know no boundaries in the community policing project or erica bridgeford from ceasefire i mean and really every neighborhood every community has folks like this and um and you say about impact i mean you you baltimore has this reputation this is the good part of the reputation for being sort of a city of neighborhoods really yeah. tight-knit communities and tight-knit neighborhoods and it's because of those people i mean that's that's what we should be proud of. And those are the stories we should be lifting up. And, and then I think it's just a matter of, um, of of giving those people the resources they need to have a bigger impact. And I hope that's what OSI tries to do. I mean, find ways to actually, um, you know, get resources and funding into the hands of folks who can actually have, you know, have an impact. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I find that a lot of times folks in those spots are bridging those gaps that, you know, those other some of those entities may not may not see may not really kind of get what's happening and you know these are the people like you said that are on the ground that are kind of like doing that work and they're serving as an intermediary or in some instances a means to disperse some of those resources that that are there because you know that's that's the thing we, we hear about it and how arts funds are allocated we hear about it and how just different resources different attention and because so many places are underserved and there is a fair amount of scarcity, everybody wants to kind of move into that spot. I remember listening to maybe the, the I guess the hearing about Artscape or what have you and just like, oh, we should have it in our district or there. It's like, yeah, but it's not happening. <laughs> or it's a parsed down version. It's like, can we get to the thing where it happens first and then figure out where it goes? And it's no shots to anyone, but it, it does speak to maybe going into and changing how we go about things mm -hmm. and having vision and, pr and fresh perspective sometimes. And that's the key thing that I've kind of been seeing and trying not to be too, too loud about because I don't know everything, obviously, but in having these sorts of conversations, it opens me up and it, and it opens up a dialogue and discourse around more things and various perspectives to try to understand better that, okay, why is this happening? What's baked in? And how can we maybe navigate and how can some of these ideas maybe be pitched in a different way and try to move forward? Because you can't keep trying to do these kind of old tactics while new opportunities are presented. Yeah. I know there's this big um, people talk about two Baltimore's and I think it's like a real thing. There's like, um, you know, people in communities. If you go to people in communities or every neighborhood who are you know living in West Baltimore and ask them, who are the people in your community who actually get stuff done, who could actually like address some of these problems? They know. I mean, mm -hmm. and yet the people, the other from the other Baltimore, the one with the money, they, you know, they're not asking those people who yeah. are the people in your neighborhood who could make change. Instead, they're giving money to the same, you know people who, who have nice websites or who, who have connections or who are gatekeepers, you know, to that community. Um, so I think a, a real key thing is, is, is like you said, sort of bridging those two worlds and letting the people who, who are on the ground and live in those communities tell the people with money, these are the people who you need this resource. And this is, you know, um, who could really make things, make changes, you know? Yeah, totally. So I got, I got two more real questions. And then I got some rapid fire questions. I like to say they're real questions, you know, so, you know, people put some intention and thought around it. Um, 
So, you know, being here, leaving, coming back, it, I think it changes perspective and being able to, you know, be a journalist too here. What are some things that define a culture, specifically here in Baltimore? Like, what are, what are three things that come to mind that when you think of Baltimore, you know, culturally speaking, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, you definitely touched on the neighborhoods thing, which is, I think, a thing that people don't get. Like New York talks yeah. about boroughs and all of that stuff. We we got different neighborhoods, and it's very distinct between block to block. Sometimes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's you know, if I could still count that as one of my three, I think that's probably the top <laughs> one. Um, just the way um, how tight knit communities are here. Like you go to a neighborhood in in Baltimore and everybody knows everybody within that community. That's not really the same in New York. I mean, you could go from one block to the next and if they don't live in your building, you know, you probably don't know them. And even if they do live in your building, um, but um, Baltimore's not like that. It's, it's a really tight knit community. It's, it, it, um, to me, it's a really friendly community. I think folks here really are, um, are open to people. They're open to conversations. They're 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 welcoming of, of uh, folks who are who come in a good spirit. Like I think it's it really is a good um, neighborhood for people. I mean, city for people to come into. So that's that's certainly a big one. Um, there's so many things to think about I mean, in terms of the culture. Um, I mean, one of the things that I really discovered at City Paper is, is Baltimore music and Baltimore club music. And, and and that's a world that was pretty new to me before I moved back. Like growing up in Pikesville in Northwest Baltimore, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to that. But um, but getting to meet, you know, and listen to, you know, um, some of that, some of those those real pioneers, uh, K-Swift and um, other other folks who I was exposed to, I really got to appreciate that that side of that world. So maybe that's another one. And actually, the dance culture is another thing that I I, I really came to really appreciate. Love. I actually one of the more fun stories, just to jump back, that I was able to do. This was it was for Rolling Stone, I think, but I got to do a story about Rai Rai. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the singer and the dancer, and and with her, we got to hang out and watch this whole rap battle that was happening. Um, uh, what's the name of the club downtown that was under the bridge that's sort of not there anymore? Um, Paradox, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and I was like, this is amazing shit. And then you saw it like... <laughs> um, DDM did a great video a few years ago too with Chad, someone with the dance crew. So um, all of that stuff, I think is pretty great. And I actually love the dirt bike culture too. I think that's a whole other world that, that gets, um, I think that's something that instead of being shut down should be sort of fostered and, and, uh, and appreciated. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's um, I think that's things that we definitely that ring true and that definitely we need to get our get our flowers on. Uh, I, I was having this conversation on a documentary um, and they were like, yeah, so so what are the things about Baltimore? And I was like, yeah, we need to get some more love about club music. I yeah, said yeah. it really, really weird and aggressively. And because uh, I was like, yo, WAP had a club music sample from Baltimore in it. I don't care. We need to get our <laughs> we need to get some love. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's really underappreciated, it seems to me, uh, beyond, you know, a really tight-knit community, which is a shame. Yeah. So here's the, here's the next one. Um, so I listened to a TED Talk a little while back, and it was talking about, like, not burying our failures, right? And um, uh, you learn and you grow from these things. So tell me about a time where you, like, you, you fail spectacularly. I mean, journalism, deadlines are a thing. I mean, I've seen, I'll put it this way. I saw a clip on a news channel here and they were saying like, yeah, this politician did, I mean, this candidate did this. 
So they had like the ticker at the bottom and then the frame at the top or what have you. Candidate is spelled differently in each part. And I was like, I don't believe <laughs> I don't believe anything else you're saying here. You know, I was like someone <laughs> someone didn't do their due diligence here. So, so so tell me about a time where, you know, in your work that you've like you knew that you like failed spectacularly, but you learned yeah. an important lesson from it. It's a really good question, and I failed a lot, so I'm trying to focus on something. But, um, the one thing that came to my mind when you asked this was, um, and it's funny, you have these moments in your life that you wonder if things went differently, how different the rest of your life would have been. But um, so I was saying how I got out of college, and, and I really just wanted to write, and I was I didn't know if I was going to write about music, if I was going to write about politics, news. I was just I just want to write. So I actually had a job interview and a writing test to write for the Washington Post. They had a spot in their New York bureau. And this was like a dream job for me. I could stay in New York. I could write for the Washington Post, which is, you know, sort of a legendary paper. And so I had an interview and um, I had a writing test. They gave me like, um, you know, a list of facts and asked me to write like a news story. And I remember I sort of did it and was pretty much done. And then I sort of second guessed myself and I went back and sort of rearranged the, the lead, you know, the first paragraph. Um, in a way that I didn't feel great about. And so I just turned it in and I didn't get the job. I didn't get called back. And um, in retro, and, and I'm, I'm glad I did this. I actually called back the editor and I said, just so I know, can you tell me what, you know, uh, you know, what, what went wrong? And she's like, yeah, the, the written piece, it was pretty good, but the, the beginning was just wrong. You know, it was sort of like I had broken it up into two paragraphs and uh, that was something that I, I, I changed, you know, like the way my instincts were right. is the short answer. Like I had written it well um, the first time. And, um, and I really learned from that to, to trust my voice a little bit, to trust my instincts. Like, um, and I, I still struggle with that because I second guess myself all the time. I think, you know, we all do on some level, but um, after that, I just, just, just sort of tried to, and this helped me, you know, as I started to write for more, you know, magazine type journalism where you can have a little bit more voice. I started to feel more comfortable just like writing how I talk or writing, you know, how I wanted to talk instead of yeah. like trying to talk, trying to say what people wanted to hear. Um, so I, and that was, that was actually turned out being helpful. But I do think about what would have happened if I got that job and worked my way up to Washington post, but um, I can't complain about where I ended up. So. Yeah. I, I, I've had an instance where I, I felt really scummy about it, um, where it was a job with Hopkins and it was a podcast like oriented job and you had to have a marketing background. And I was like, all right, I had like, I had like this weird, I had hair. I'll just put it that way. And I had a, I had a lot of beard. I was living a very interesting lifestyle. And I remember I kind of like sold it all out because I was like, well, here's a real opportunity. Uh, and, and then I just like something was telling me like this isn't going to go. It was too many things that were like, like I had a beard and I shaved it all off and then I cut my chin. I had a bad like scar on it. And yeah. I was, it was like one of those things of you should want to go to the interview with this bloody chin and, you know, all of these different things. And I couldn't fit any out of my suits. So I had to buy a new suit or buy three yeah. new suits and all of these just different things. And I'm like learning from it. Like you kind of, in a sense, sold out what was important to you, sold out what your your values were or even your burgeoning values for something that may or may not fit and may or may not work for you, whereas this has been working. And I think that's the key thing that I've learned from it, especially, you know, in this spot, um, you know, in doing this, this podcast, which is very, you know, very important to me, very, you know, a thing that I invested a lot of time in and got a little recognition recently, you know, shout out to uh, Baltimore Magazine. And, yeah. um, you know, so definitely, I think 
learning from those lessons where, you know, like that interview, for instance, that's a failure for me. I didn't get the job <laughs> and, um, you know, it didn't work out the way that I was hoping, but I think, you know, I learned a lot from it. And I think is very important to really take those lessons and just, you got to learn something from it. You got to learn something from those things. Yeah. I was, uh, I don't remember who said it, but, um, somebody said, I never lose. I either win or I learn. Yeah. So that's, that's great. All right. Time for some rapid fire. Uh, so you, you know how rapid fire works. You, you, you've done a podcast before, I think. Wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Serp daddy. Uh, so I'm going to start off with the softball. Crunchy or creamy? Uh, creamy. Okay. Hmm. Uh, like, like, just like a simple lifestyle, I see. I hear you. Uh-huh. I, I prefer <laughs> well, crunchy. You know, most, of, most of what I, my peanut butter choices and all of my food choices are driven by my children. So they like creamy, so I'm stuck on creamy. I dig it. Um, this is an interesting one. Uh, what is a word that you have a very hard time pronouncing? Huh. Um, I'm always conflicted over whether to say Caribbean or Caribbean. Same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I struggle with that. Um, what is something that with with minimal information, minimal knowledge about who you are as an individual, but what is something that people tend to think you know a lot about just based on like what you present and how you pop up to a place? Yeah, Evan knows a lot about this. What do, what do people do? I give off the impression of a guy who knows a lot about food. I'm a big guy. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. And I gotta say, like, my there's certain foods that I know a lot about, but for the most part, my taste is really bad. Like I, I eat cheap, crappy fast food. And that's probably why I'm like this, but like, I have no appreciation for like quality food. I mean, <laughs> if you said that you had a tourism show and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go here with a try. This was like, okay, that makes sense. That's what I was doing. It yeah, exactly. makes sense. How can I be a producer? Like, what are we doing? Um, yeah, kind of, I, I usually would get like, um, I, I, I get this from chefs once they know me a lot, once they know me a little bit, not a lot. And they're like, oh, you're a food snob. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I had chefs like, I don't even know if I want to cook for you, bro. You, you, you're a little bit of a snob. Really? I was like, wow. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you who once we're done here. Um, right. Go to pastime. If you know, like you, you have a few moments, what have you, and you're like, you know, I want to just kill some time, but it's, it's something enjoyable. What is a go-to pastime for you? Uh, I gotta say, well, I, I love tennis. I love to watch tennis. Love to yeah. play tennis. Um, so actually, today, like, I love working from home. For one thing, the City Open is happening this week, which is tennis tournament in DC. So I'm actually going on Saturday. But even during the day, I'm skipping out of work to watch tennis channel. So that, that's that's how I spend my time. I had a really cool. Um, I'll call it my European. Um, I call it my European weekend. Uh, me and my my partner, me and my girlfriend, we went up to um, Philly a couple of years back. And this is when we first became aware of Froze. So we got Froze on a rooftop bar. We were watching tennis and just legs crossed. I was like, mm, come out with the Yucas Bravas. Thank you. More of the, the Gabagool, more of the stuff. <laughs> yeah. And none of that was for her. Cause she, cause she, she doesn't, she doesn't eat meat. So all that was just for me. Oh, okay. It's like the, the, the alcohol is for you. The, the meat is for me. <laughs> um, so this is the last one. And I, I'm, I'm hoping to get a good one. I'm hoping to get a good one from you because usually people haven't been able to really ride this train. So usually the question is, you know, tell me a joke. But then people are like, oh, I'm on the spot. I don't know what to say. So I'm going to frame it a little differently. Now, extra points if this is somehow funny. What is a word that you hate hearing? 
Um, I do have a good joke. If you want me to throw out a joke, you can throw out a joke, please. Because <laughs> I don't have a good word. I mean, you know, I don't like the word moist, but nobody likes the word moist. Thank you. I was I literally <laughs> was saying moist. <laughs> <laughs> but my joke, I just told this actually with uh, some friends, and it got a good response. So a guy um, goes to prison, and he's sitting in like the, the you know, the dining room, and um, a guy he sees a guy stand up, and the guy yells out thirty six, and everybody laughs, cracks up hysterically. And uh, uh, 10 minutes later, another guy stands up. He says, 47. Everybody laughs. He's like, and then, you know, waits a little while. And then five minutes later, there's another guy who rolls out, 29. And the room dies. They're laughing hysterically. And the guy turns to the guy next to him. He's like, what the hell's going on? Why is everybody He's like, well, you know, we've all been here so long in telling the same jokes that instead of telling the joke, we just say the number of the joke and everybody laughs. He's like, oh, all right. That's, that's pretty weird, but all right. Um, so the next day, he's all excited. He goes back into the, the lunchroom and um, he stands up on his chair and he yells out, 29. Nobody laughs. Crickets, nothing. So he turns to the guy next to him. He's like, what, what's, what the hell happened? Yesterday, that was a big hit. He's like, you didn't tell it right. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's my joke. I like it. So there you have it, folks. Um, I want to thank uh, Evan Serpic for coming on to the podcast. And uh, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check you out. And um, yeah, the floor is yours. Thanks. I don't have much to follow. I mean, I, you know, I, I do work for OSI Baltimore. I think they do great work. Um, but actually, if you're going to support anybody, support the Baltimore Beat, which is, uh, you know, comeback Black-owned, Black-led newspaper that I think Baltimore really needs. So go help them out. So you have it, folks. I want to again thank Evan Serbic for coming on to the podcast. And I am Rob Lee saying that there is art, community, just good things happening in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. <laughs>